Welcome back to episode two of this season of the VMP Anthology podcast. As you know by now, this season is devoted to the folk boom of the 50s and 60s, and the record label that brought many of the boom's best artists and albums to record stores and festivals around the world, Vanguard. In this episode, we cover the first album in your box, The Weavers Live at Carnegie Hall, the album that launched Vanguard into the folk space, saved the Weavers from the blacklist, and helped kick off the folk boom in a commercial way. In this episode, I talk with writer Jesse Jarno, the first two-time guest in VMP Anthology podcast history, about his book, Wasn't That a Time? The Weavers, the Blacklist, and the Battle for the Soul of America, a far-ranging, utterly incredible book about the mechanics of McCarthyism and the Weaver's role in it. In this interview with Jesse, we cover the album's unlikely creation, given that the band was broken up pre this concert at Carnegie Hall, and the threat of McCarthyism. We also talk about how adept the Weavers were at picking songs and how radical they actually were, despite in 2021 seeming like a band that just sings campfire songs. The Weavers, in ways small and big, are responsible for all the folk acts that came in their wake, and especially the five albums after this one in our VMP anthology. So I guess like to start, you know, why the Weavers? Like what what made you, you know, dive into writing a, a full book about them? Yeah, sure. Well, they were there two things. Uh, the first is that they were my favorite band as a kid, like as a okay. really little kid before I even like found the Beatles, before I found anything else. Really, my mom played Pete Seeger records for me. Just it was the, the music of my childhood and, and the Weavers. And I, I loved their voices. They were the first band that I could identify by name. The, the way, you know, you can, you know, John Paul, George, Ringo, I could do <laughs> Freddie, Pete, you know, Ronnie Lee. So I had been thinking about them again after I wrote Heads. I had just been sort of rifling through stories in my head that I thought might make cool books that didn't exist. And I proposal, not a real proposal my editor. And he was like, nah, probably not. <laughs> it was it wasn't like that. He he's he's a, he's a huge Weavers fan. He's he's an uh-huh. amazing he's an amazing guy, but uh, it didn't seem viable at that moment. But then the 2016 election happened, mm-hmm. and suddenly it just seemed topical. Mm-hmm. And I sent an email, you know, a few weeks after that, and that was kind of what 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 led me down into it. Just sort of thinking about continuities in American culture, because I mean, there's so you know. You know, you can say that, you know, oh, the past mirrored the present in this way or that way. But to me, the story of the Weavers is just how there's a continuity and how it's not it's not like, oh, the same thing happened, you know, 70 years ago. It's like this other part this earlier part of the story happened 70 years ago. And you can see mm-hmm. how it continues through this amazing records, <laughs> these amazing mm-hmm. all the this amazing record, especially. But but all of their records, I mean, this really is the like as far as like Weaver's albums goes, the Weaver the Weaver's Carnegie Hall record like is is the is the jam, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and it tells like in a microcosm like their entire story. It really does, and it's amazing. You know, I was rereading. I brought them all along, rereading the liner notes, and it's amazing how much they don't talk about in the liner notes, like on the actual back cover of the album for like the people who were buying it in the 1950s. This was, you know, you either knew the story, or you didn't. The liner notes themselves are very much like boosterism you know rah rah this is uh-huh. a great record. and there are you know right. there's not and, you know 
I was going to say there's nothing untrue, but there there are actually a couple of dingers in here. <laughs> but um, but yeah, incredible record. Like it doesn't mention that. It, so doesn't mention that it's a reunion record, for example. Doesn't mention <laughs> that it's their first concert in three years. Yeah, just any of that. And then obviously does not mention the blacklist. Yeah, obviously yeah, does not mention the blacklist. So yeah, the Weavers at Carnegie Hall was recorded in um. December 1955. And then the Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes, two members of the Weaver, both um, testified for the House Un-American Activities Committee months earlier over the summer and had been in the national news, you know, just as, you know, alleged communists. And, and Pete Seeger especially was, you know, this, this was the Red Scare. This was the age of lots of, you know, famous people being, or semi-famous people being dragged up in front of subcommittees and committees and such. Most of them, including Lee Hayes, took the, the Fifth Amendment, which is the, the right to, to not self-incriminate. But Pete Seeger was fired up, and he did not. He came very close to going to jail over it. And, and in fact, that was hanging over his head for the entire period between the summer of 1955 and... I think 1961, maybe 1962, whenever, I think 61, whenever that case finally like cleared, I think he maybe spent like an hour in jail or something like that. <laughs> but, but mm-hmm. that, you know, that's a six year court case. And so during this period, he's an outlaw. He right. is like, he's a popular hero mm-hmm. of the left, of the people, of the, prog- you know, the progressive movement. He's the man listening to this record now and listening to really any of the Weavers music now, most of the Weavers music now. It's just so hard to get a sense of how this stuff was dangerous. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, like, why yeah. are you like, you know, it's these these beautiful harmonies and this like enthusiastic singing. And, you know, it's very there's excess of good cheer. You know, it's real mirthful for the uh-huh. most part. I mean, there's some some bummer moments for sure. But um, but, you know, celebration is really the, the mood of the Weavers. So the fact that it's, you know, the government has deemed it dangerous is is so fascinating in, in now and, mm-hmm. and, you know, then, too. In a real way, the Weaver sing-alongs were, were constructed to help bring people into the, into the movement, into the progressive movement, into the socialist mm-hmm. movement. And in that sense, they never talk about that at, like, the, the House on american stuff. They're, they're always asking the Weavers, like, who did you sing for? Who is paying you? This, that, or the other. And never talk about like the mechanics of what they're doing or like they never ask a single question about that. And, and actually, I think Pete Seeger, you know, a couple of times he's like, I'll, I'll tell you about the music in his testimony. <laughs> and I, I wish they would have asked him. I wish somebody would have, you know, asked. But, you know, they were that was that was what these that was. So the event at Carnegie Hall, that this live album came from was a Christmas Eve show. And that was part of this tradition that they already had. Before the Weavers, uh, mm-hmm. they, they came out of this group called People's Songs, which was this progressive lefty song organization that, that emerged after World War II. This was Pete Seeger's big vision after World War II was this this collective organization that could send out topical songs for union leaders or political candidates or whoever needed a, you know, striking minors, whoever needed a topical song. You write to People's Songs, we'll get you your song. Heck, we can even get you musicians, you know, just just let us know. And it was actually a pretty good idea at the time because the union movement was huge right after World War II, but then immediately kind of made this centrist right turn into kind of what we think of as, as unions now. And it turned out kind of the only successful part of people songs were these hootenannies that they had, which were, you know, these kind of, I want, you know, maybe roughly quarterly big events that they would have that they would be topical and it would be like, you know, um, the summer song hootenanny or, you mm-hmm. know, work song hootenanny or, 
those were huge. Those were sellouts. Those were that was a real source of income. And Christmas or holiday hootenannies, definitely not just Christmas because they made a point of singing carols from all over the world. So that was a real big thing for them. And the Weavers continued that tradition. That was their their big thing were, were holiday concerts. Their first ever performance was a Thanksgiving hootenanny uh, at Irving Plaza, which is still which actually just reopened as a venue like uh, this still if you're if you're in New York, you can still <laughs> see shows there. And yeah, so like a lot of the big Weavers gigs were were sort of that kind of had these holiday associations and in, including this one, including this comeback show. So the album begins itself with Darling Corey, which is amazing and mm-hmm. a, a perfect choice, a great choice for an album opener. Really great choice. But the shows themselves began and ended with uh, We Wish You a Merry Christmas, <laughs> which, you know, I understand why they didn't go with that. As <laughs> right. Yeah. And in retrospect, yeah, you couldn't imagine like a very popular band opening a live comeback album with Merry Christmas. But, yeah, you know, right. but yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. I mean, the 50s were a different time and all. But yeah. So uh, when I um, was researching my book, I, I got to go through Ronnie Gilbert's papers I mean, this was now three or four years ago. It was ultimately going to go to Smith College, so it might be there by now. But in there were four reels, I want to say, of the full show, of the full Carnegie Hall reunion show, which had the full set list written out on it. And unfortunately, I did not have the, the, the space time to get those, those transferred, but they exist, and I hope, hope somebody does transfer them. But it was interesting to see kind of how the performances on the record kind of fell into the context of the actual show, which was a which was a two set performance. That was sort of that was kind of what the Weavers did. And there are tapes of earlier holiday performances that they had done in the, the first part of their career at Town Hall that were in Fred Hellerman's collection that sound amazing. I I I don't know who who made those tapes, but they they did them extremely well. So that you can see kind of that this program kind of falls in the general pattern of mm-hmm. those where it's, you know, they always begin and end with wish you a Merry Christmas that, you know, goes back to the people songs era. And, but yeah, and then, you know, they have, you know, holiday carols from elsewhere. There's some Woody Guthrie tunes. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not a formula. It's just, it's just the weavers that are just, that's right. just, it's just eclectic. It's kind of all over the map. Yeah. And you say in the book, one of the things that I really, you know, took and appreciated was there may be the weavers greatest strength is that they're like ace song selectors that like their their choice of like what folk songs from around the world to incorporate into their set is like what really set them apart. Yeah, no, they had really good ears and just a really good instinct towards just catchiness, basically. And thing and things that were, you know, things that worked in in four part harmony that, you know, that was that was a real strength. That was something that not a lot of people had, you know, was was this combination of four part harmony and just this energy drive enthusiasm that the weavers had it was those two things i think in combination just that that made them i mean irresistible like it's Mm. to 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 certain people and and in that era a lot of people that's almost it's like it is almost beatles like in that same way right like the content doesn't matter as much as the energy and the i mean the content does matter but the energy is what you feel first and just the 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 musical the musical total picture Mm mm-hmm Yeah, I mean, to go back, I guess, like to the mechanics of how they end up on the blacklist. But like, yeah, sure. Do you think that like, you know, they were immensely popular pre the blacklist, 
like how much of them being distributed by Decca do you think played into, you know, like you said, their music didn't sound radical, but they were the most popular lefty folk group on earth. Like, well, is the, that what ultimately like is the target on them? You know? Well, yeah. I mean, there wasn't much competition for being the most popular lefty <laughs> folk group on <laughs> earth true. at that point. That's I mean, they could, um, but you know, the, the, the well, the, the target was on them before the Weavers existed, and they kind of knew that. It was more like it was when are they going to catch up with it? Because so before People's Songs, which I've been talking about before, there was there were the Almanac Singers, which is the real like root core of where the Weavers came from. And the Almanac Singers were founded in you know 1940, 1941 uh, by Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes, who you know become the, mm-hmm. sort of the the elder half of the Weavers. But Woody Guthrie was a prime mover in in the Almanac Singers, and they all lived together in the Almanac House in New York. Uh, and it was kind of this floating location, but it was you know a really early model of like group DIY loft venue living, where they would have you know monthly rent party, where you know Lead Belly would come play in the basement, or you know they would you know they would play in the basement, and they played on what was called the subway. They called it the subway circuit. It was kind of playing rallies and meetings, and you know. Hootenannies, you know, kind of early. Mm-hmm. They, and that was kind of the period where they first learned the term Hootenanny, uh, which they learned, Pete and Woody learned in Seattle on like a cross country trip. But they got popular as the Almanac singers. I mean, this is sort of blurring over a bunch of things. But when World War World War II started, they, you know, they, they became a popular singing act. They were the the Communist Party at that point, who they were aligned with during this period in World War II was aligned with the American government. So mm-hmm. the topical songs that they were singing were pro-war, were anti-Hitler, were things that could get you on the radio. Um, mm-hmm. But just before that, the Communist Party had not been aligned with the United States. The Communist Party had not been with the, aligned with the United States until uh, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, at which point they aligned with the United <laughs> States. But before that, the official Soviet the Soviet point of view were was peace, you know, it was anti-war songs. So the, mm-hmm. the, the so the, the Weavers yeah, or the Weavers, excuse me, the Almanac singers kind of have this history of kind of you know sort of singing things aligned with sort of the Socialist Front or the the communist you know the Popular Front, and this comes out during during when the Almanac singers get really popular. There's this brief period where they're they're getting offered a radio show, they're getting offered, you know, like all this stuff, um, a recording contract. And then it comes out that, oh yeah, they're 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 well known communists. And immediately all that gets like yanked out away from them. Mm-hmm. So they were they were known. Like Pete, you know, Pete okay. is not a secret <laughs> progressive right. in yeah. any way, you know. And even when they you know, walked into Decca. The guy, you know, the uh, Milk Gabler who who runs Decca is, you know, he's plugged in. He's like, oh, Pete, I know, I know who you are. You know, it's you know, he was he was he was pretty infamous. He was he was he was an underground hero before they before they signed to Decca. And amazingly, after they signed to Decca, like it wasn't like oh, I mean, you you get a couple of people saying the Weavers sold out, mm-hmm. a few, and actually some pretty loud. It's kind of a fascinating, it's really fascinating conversation, like look at that little window. But in general, like Pete Seeger survived, you know, survived the top 10, maybe part because he got blacklisted and kind of got a little bit more cred or something. But anyways, the target was on them from the get go. They knew okay. that. And they, they, they've talked about that a lot was like, you know, for us, it was kind of like, we knew there were like, once, once we got six, you know, like they got, so they got successful in New York, the Weavers, Formed in 1948, 
spent kind of like a year playing what was left of of the subway circuit of you know like fundraisers and they played like a, a sunday show at like the photo league which was like a you know lefty photo gallery space collective and then they, they decided decided to try to sell out to try to go commercial to them what that meant was a gig at the village vanguard which is <laughs> that was yeah. as far as their vision of like let's sell out let's get a gig at the vanguard yeah. you know <laughs> And to them, that was already compromised. And it's amazing. They got a gig at the Village Vanguard at the end of 1949 and were wildly successful. They held over like seven months in total. I think they played there from like December, December 49 through June of 1950 when the Vanguard closed down for the summer because they didn't have air conditioning. And during the last two months of that, got signed to DECA. And in the summer of 1950, their first singles started coming out and they became that's when they hit the top 10. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, things are kind of starting to crash down already on other parts of the folk world. This is also when um, to Harvey Matusau, who's this who's the guy who eventually sort of ratted on the Weavers. But you didn't really need to rat on the Weavers. Right. I was gonna, I was going to say that. Uh, yeah. It was pretty, pretty. Yeah. But I guess formally you needed someone. But so he, this is kind of the period where like people are starting to do that you know, in the folk world. And Harvey Matusa is a complicated, you know, is a frustratingly complicated character, but you know, he, he was sort of a sociopath and was just ready to accuse anybody of anything for a while. <laughs> right. And that was like an interesting part of your book was like, it really seemed like there reached a point where he was just like, he was pointing at everybody he could to, yeah, it, to bring it, everybody with him or something. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pathological really. And so that, so there's another thing, another subtext going on, not even a subtext, but just another thing going on in this period is just the frenzy around the blacklist and the frenzy around communism where you've got things like that happening. One of the things that Ronnie Gilbert talked about was just the constant harassment they experienced and to the point where people would like hand them papers and say they were being served subpoenas and they didn't know whether it was like it was real or not. Like, you know, this hmm. was, is this like an actual government person or is this just like a hostile like rando who's like trying to, you know, right. harass us? And that, you know, and that um, that did it did seem like things like that happened. And adding to the confusion was they were pop stars and they had this manager. They had a couple managers, but one of them, Pete Cameron, not Harold Leventhal, who's their sort of more famous manager, but. um actually sort of shielded them from that stuff and kind of negotiated somehow their telegrams that in, in Ronnie's archive that kind of attest to this and kind of negotiated on the slide to kind of get the, the hearings moved or something. Cause there, there like there, there are telegrams in that he sent to Ronnie like decades later, kind of showing this. So, but anyway, they were just, there was constant harassment, constant chaos around them. It was, you know, after after the Matusas stuff hit, which was early 52, there was just kind of like um, just media, you know, media noise around them wherever they appeared. You know, people protesting their 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 shows. And, and you know, the, you see these amazing things where the press would like confront them when they got off the plane. Like, you know, did you know, blah, 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 you know, did you say this or, you know, you know, the, the one that I love that, I, you know, it kind of makes me emo- you know, emotional to hear somebody is like accuses Lee Hayes of saying, you know, you're accused of speaking at the um, the funeral of alleged communist. I can't remember who it was right now. It was, uh, you know, alleged communist so-and-so. 
and Pete and and Lee responsible. Well, first of all, he was a known communist and he was my best friend or something like that. And it's just kind of this amazing, like, screw you, man. Like mm-hmm. you have you have no right to, you know, to tell me I did anything bad. And to bring it back to actually the Weavers at Carnegie Hall, I was thinking about that moment and moments like that, looking at the track list. And Darlene Corey, I was saying, you know, the Weavers stuff, it's it's hard to see it as dangerous or as aggressive mm-hmm. in any way. But looking at this track list and thinking about Darling Corey, especially in the way the Weavers played it, is maybe the most aggro moment in their catalog. Like it begins with them shouting, wake up, wake up. You mm-hmm. know, and this is after three years of no shows, after the blacklist, after, you know, a lot of really bad stuff has happened. And that's a pretty, you know, I think if you were plugged into all of those things, at that moment and bought this record, you know, you, that would have, I think that probably would have resonated. And, if you're and up you, on everything it, that's happening and yeah. yeah. And if you didn't, it probably, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure it resonated as well. Like I, you know, I, that was, I loved that song for sure. When I was, when I was a kid, I, I didn't mm-hmm. know anything about that. I mean, I knew a little bit about that stuff, but not that much. <laughs> yeah. So you tell in the book about, you know, there was sort of like the manager, their manager had to lie and tell each of them, <laughs> that the others had agreed to the reunion show until he could get all of them to agree and then was able to say, like, everybody has agreed. And that's pretty much like the only story that they ever all agree on, that that happened. <laughs> so, I mean, a thing about that I've discovered just kind of in the contem- I was the contemporary age is just sort of how much apocryphal storytelling happened, just as a matter of course, in, mm-hmm. by, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, by... Yeah, that's just what storytelling was in in older generations, you know, right? where it's like and it's now it's like, oh, everything is time stamped and we can see what really happened. Uh Um, But that story, like everybody tells it. So there's a lot of stories that we, you know, and at the beginning of like the liner notes here say there's like 15 minutes of applause after Darling Corey, something like that. I think Mm -hmm. think is what it's, you know, things what it says on the, the album so you have to take all these things with with grains of salt is what i'm saying right. um but that story everybody tells it and like <laughs> it's one that the weavers really like they haggled over everything like there's mm-hmm. amazing like some of them saved all their mail like their group mail and it's like it's just like a, you know i'm in a band we we have co- long drawn out conversations by email chain and it's like it's, it's the same thing it's like these long <laughs> long email chains over all the smallest <laughs> details but uh-huh. that's what it is to be a band yeah so harold had harold leventhal was their ally he was their manager he was their their mensch he was their you know their champion whatever and you know he was a he was a fellow traveler that was kind of what distinguished him he was you know definitely a member of the party at one point mm-hmm. um, but apparently just such a a, a a charming and sweet and gracious gracious guy um, but yeah, he, he convinced them all like, yeah, everybody else, everybody else is on board. You're the only one who's, who's, who's holding out <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, you know, but the weavers really had broken up. That's kind of the, the, the other side of that story is that none of them called the others to ask. None of them were in touch with the others. They really were like, had gone their separate ways at that point, which I think says a lot about both the blacklist and, and who they all were individually. They were friends. That's not, but they were the, 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 the kind of friends they were was really very much about being in a band together i think mm-hmm. like that that was really the thing that connected them you know like I, I don't think they were often like you know going to the movies together that kind of thing and when that disappeared i think 
they're hanging out maybe dissipated a little bit too, or I know it dissipated a lot. But the thing is, musically, they always got along. That was kind of what they said. They said we, they, we would, they would fight over everything, like really, like these these letter chains. It's like every detail. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got. Everybody has an opinion over everything. But they all would say that musically, just in terms of like what they were doing on stage, that was effortless from the first to the last. There's probably a couple of exceptions to that rule, but for the most part, they actually did get along as like as a band. But there were other parts of that 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 did not go so well did not go so well and Um, so they the manager convinces them to do it and he has the foresight to record which also seems like pretty remarkable that like right and yeah and true but they all as i discovered in fred's archives they'd already been doing that so okay what was i gonna say oh yeah so yeah that is that's that is an interesting thing so in uh, people's songs uh they had a newsletter and there's definitely like early exam there's examples and this is like we're talking 19 1946 47 basically when they had this newsletter and they would be, they would shout out like new forms of technology like hey mm. there's this new thing called FM radio where you can apply for a community permit and you know get your own radio station on on this other thing and they tr- that was a failed thing they tried to do that and the I tracked the paper trail and they like it's like you see I can't remember who it was it wasn't Pete but somebody was trying to do it for like like eight or nine years to try to get their own like educational FM station and it didn't work. But uh, uh, wire recording is one that they call out and specifically in one of those things. And, and um, there are wire recordings of a bunch of the people songs, hoot nannies that, that are in various archives. And there's actually a, a recording of a weaver's show from the village Vanguard from, oh, wow. I think it's from spring 1950 and I'm pretty sure it's before they signed with Decca because it's still got the original verses to Goodnight Irene because Decca made them change, take out the uh, take morphine and die uh-huh. uh, line when they recorded it. And then from then on, that was how they did it. But yeah, so there's a wire recording from one of the Vanguard gigs that was it. That was that uh, Fred had transferred to Dat at some point. So I did get to hear that. That was incredible. And then somebody, I don't know who, because I don't think it was Decca, but somebody made really nice recordings of some of their town hall gigs, uh, town hall holiday shows in 51 and 52. And the 52 shows were like the last the last shows until the 55 show that we're talking about. So those those were in the vault. And some of those have been released, not in their entirety, but I can't remember what it's called. Maybe Kisses Sweeter Than Wine. There's like a, 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 a several CD set that like Fred put together in the later years that are kind of like, highlights of all of those shows but really those are incredibly cool to hear as well and just all of them because it's you know the weaver studio records were sweetened you know they had right. or- orchestras and this is this is the this is the weavers this is the real thing this is mm-hmm. you know so for people who never seen them live the weavers at carnegie hall record was the first time they had ever really heard the weavers right it's know, the first like, like commercially released like live recording right like yeah. yeah and not only that i mean it is for definitely of the weavers but it's really a pioneer live recording in general it had been part of the jazz world for sure by then but that was kind of the mood the move into LPs and the move into live recordings were not things that the pop world had really embraced yet by the late 50s. And the Weavers were really on the forefront of that. And this, you know, the Carnegie Hall record really sold a lot. And that it kicked off those trends. Actually, by, I can't remember when it was, 61, there's like a Billboard article that actually like calls out like the trend of live at Carnegie Hall albums. And it like cites like four or five. One of them, the Jimmy Reed one is like, 
not even recorded at Carnegie Hall. It's just called it's like it's like it's like right. one of those like you know live at Ravi Shankar live at Woodstock, but actually just uh-huh. the, rain, the rain is overdubbed. You know, it's like one of those situations, right? Yeah, um, I mean, like it got to the point where it's like you know Buck Owens is doing yeah. you know live at yeah. Carnegie Hall. Like love, yeah, it's I love, everybody. I love, I love that Buck Owens record. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing record. Yeah, originally Harold. Uh, had tried to get Town Hall, which is where they'd played all those previous gigs that in, mm-hmm. in 51 and 52 and, and other times. And um, Town Hall said no. Town Hall, I, I, and it seems like it was sort of remnants of the blacklist. Like that was kind of what, that was kind of what, what made them say no. And Harold was like, okay, I'll try Carnegie Hall. And they got Carnegie Hall, which is, which is bigger, much bigger. It's like mm-hmm. twice the size. I think Town Hall is like, Fifteen hundred and Carnegie Hall is like three thousand, something like that, and sold out, <laughs> like insane, mm-hmm. insanely sold out. And they were, you know, that rings true to me that like how, that they really didn't expect it to that to happen. Expect there to still be an audience like that, but you know, it's also New York, and right, you know, New York is New York. But the, the show itself, separate from the live album, the show itself was just a landmark performance in just the folk world and the New York music world, because there are all these people. So in the intervening time, Mm -hmm. three years since there'd been no Weavers gigs, Pete Seeger really hit the road, like as a solo, solo musician and played just tons and tons and tons. Just, you can't, he was playing like multiple gigs a day if he could. And we're talking like schools, summer camps, colleges, you know, really anything but like proper theaters with tickets and posters where he might get nailed down. But, built up a legit following during that period and not just you know a following but really young like kids because he's playing summer camps in schools like we're talking teenagers and that's right and that's where Joan Baez ultimately like decides to go folk is right exactly. from a Pete Seeger show yeah yeah that, and that's you know Peter Paul and Mary you know that's where it's kind of where they're coming from so the, this Carnegie Hall show are is the first chance for a lot of these kids to see the Weavers Mary Travers from Peter Paul and Mary was at this this show and she met I don't remember if it was Peter or Paul met one of the one of them at that show for the first time. There's some other things like that. It's like, you know, I spent a lot of my time talking about the Grateful Dead, but the the Weaver shows seemed like they had some of that as well, where it's like this larger social network that's then kind of manifesting in kind of the boundaries of this show mm-hmm. where if you're part of it, you'll run into people that, you know, and if you're not part of it, it's a way to kind of, you know, meet somebody who's part of that and kind of like, you know, become part of that world. Right. And the Weaver shows became that for the next, you know, they got back together at the end of 55 broke up in 63 for, for good or for mostly for good in that window. Like Weaver shows were like, that was where you went. They played, you know, I can't remember what year there was like some show in like spring break for all the schools and, or maybe, maybe it was this holiday show. Like all the, the schools were like all the colleges were all like home for the holidays and things mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, Weaver shows were, you know, meeting points. They were catalysts in that, in that way. Um, right. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, similarly to how the parental advisory sticker ultimately, <laughs> like the original, yeah. the original effect was that like, if you put a parental advisory sticker on a record, it sold a million copies. Part of me does wonder, like, you know, th- there's no greater exposure at the time than being on a, on a blacklist, you know, McCarthy saying your name, right? Like, does that, I yeah. I don't know. I think it's the Vanguard quality control branding on the front of the LP that did it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's what got the kids into communism. No, uh, yeah, I think that's definitely, 
how are you going to keep them down on the farm once they've heard Vanguard quality control? <laughs> um, yeah, it's definitely, I think, gave them a lot of allure. So for my book, I got to talk to a bunch of people who were huge Weavers fans who went on to become musicians of some renown. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of them talked about the politics of it. Very few hmm. of them talked about the politics of it, including people you'd expect. Like, so I talked to David Cro- I got to talk to David Crosby about the Weavers a few times, and he loves the harmonies. You know, that's not surprising. And his dad was even blacklisted. His dad was was a lefty. And you know, you 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 see David Crosby as this like archetypal, like the mu- the music has the power, man, you know. Right. And and he did not get that from the Weavers. For him, like he was not into Pete's politics. He was into he was into the harmony. Same thing with um, Al Jardine from the Beach Boys. You know, that, that one's a little more expected that he he mm-hmm. reacted to, to that kind of one. I think he he was into one of the later Carnegie Hall records was one of the ones that Al Jardine said. So, yeah, there's f- at least four Weaver's Carnegie Hall records, by the way. Not, you know, there's there's <laughs> right. volume two in 1960, which has the Eric Darling lineup. And then they did a reunion at Carnegie Hall in 63, which has Pete Seeger on it, as well as all their other banjo players, including Bernie Krause, who went on to become an insanely cool musician way outside of the, the, the realm of folk music. Um, and there's two volumes of that, including some stuff from the studio that's not actually <laughs> live at Carnegie Hall. Um, so they even extended to them. Right. The yeah, exactly. Hall. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah. so, but then another musician who, got a lot out of the weavers was jerry garcia and mm-hmm. i talked to his his girlfriend from that period who is you know part of the 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 palo alto folk scene that jerry kind of came up in and there's there's a recording there's a box set called before the dead which is a bunch of jerry garcia's recordings from right. his, mm-hmm. his, his folk era and the first one on that is him and robert hunter who became the his the lyricist for the grateful dead playing at a birthday party for this for Jerry's girlfriend, Bridget, then known as Barbara, who's who, who's who I spoke to. And they, uh, it's like pretty much everything there goes back to a Pete Seeger song or a song, you know, not mm. obviously one he wrote, but something from the, like the Pete Seeger Weaver's like repertoire. It's very much like a Weaver's sing along. Sure. And what, and what she told me was that what they got out of seeing Pete Seeger and I th- is that, I'm not sure if Jerry saw the Weavers. She definitely did. I was trying to figure out dates, but couldn't come up with anything definite. But what she, what she said they got out of it was the sense, the first sense that going to a musical event wasn't just this passive thing where you sat in the audience and the musician was on stage and the musician played at you, hmm. that there was this like relationship between those two things, between the energy and what was happening in the audience, the musician on stage and kind of the sing-alongs and the interaction and the fact that there was like, a collectivity among the audience that, that the audience was a unified thing. And it wasn't just, you were like a bunch of people who bought tickets and happened to be sitting next to the other people who bought tickets. And you know, that's not taking the lefty socialist message out of the weavers, except in a deeper, more structural way. I think it kind of is, or it's taking the collectivism message out of it. And I think for sure, you know, I think Pete Seeger would have been happy I think he'd be happy if you took the harmonies out of it, you know, the harmony lesson, happy if you take the collectivism lesson, happy if you take the the socialism. But yeah, so the Weavers broadcast all this different stuff to people.
VMP Anthology podcast is written, hosted, and produced by me, Andrew Winnestorfer. It's executive produced by Amelia Sutliff and edited by Poromo Chakravarti. It was recorded in my basement in St. Paul, so I'd like to extend a very special thank you to Arthur and Remy for being very good boys and not being noisy while I was recording this. A special thanks to Jesse Jarno for sitting on Google Hangouts with me talking about old folk music. We'll see you next episode when we cover Odetta. And as always, I leave you with this. Listen to more Dave Van Rock. Mm-hmm.